Welcome to The Global Inquirer. The Global Inquirer is an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. recording an episode in the format of a roundtable, so it'll be a discussion between me, our researcher, and our guest, and we'll all be able to interact with each other throughout the episode. Currently, I'm sitting down with Sarah Rocca, a third-year foreign affairs major who is minoring in Spanish, and our special guest today is Mr. Daniel Altman. He is currently the Executive Director of Investigative Operations with U.S. Customs and Border Protection, but for the purposes of our episode, we're most interested in his role as the former Assistant Inspector General for investigations with the U.S. Agency for International Development, better known as USAID. Today, we're bringing you an episode about how the U.S. Agency for International Development operates broadly with the global community and other actors to address pressing issues. So, Sarah, could you maybe introduce us a little bit more to what USAID is and what they do? Hi, Emma. Absolutely. It's great to be back in the studio again, especially for such a great episode talking about USAID. So for starters, USAID stands for the United States Agency for International Development. And briefly, their focus is on providing programs and aid to promote economic development and demonstrate American generosity across the world. The agency was founded in 1961 under the Kennedy administration, and its origins can trace back to the Marshall Plan, where the U.S. provided aid all across Europe in order to reduce poverty in post-war Europe, while also creating markets for the U.S., the U.S. realized they needed a central agency to facilitate this kind of aid. An important part of the agency's role in facilitating this kind of humanitarian aid is tracking just how the aid is provided and any fraudulent acts that may arise from all of the different systems that USAID oversees. I want to turn now to our special guest, Mr. Daniel Altman, to describe his role in the Inspector General's office with USAID. Well, thanks, Sarah and Evan. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast with you guys. My time with the Inspector General's Office at USAID was was deeply impactful on me, and so it's a great opportunity for me to talk with you all about some of the experiences that I had while working there. Um, One of the things I'd like to do today is I'm starting to talk about some of the different investigations and things that are going on involving international foreign assistance, is to rely heavily on some examples that are fairly well publicized, because that will allow uh, listeners not only to absorb what I've said, but to go back and do some of their own research on these cases. Um, and everything I'm going to talk about is something that people should be able to find very easily online uh, and really um, build on the discussion that we're going to have today. Just to talk a little bit about USAID, um, Sarah, I think you, you gave a really good introduction. Today, we're going to be focused uh, primarily on the parts of USAID's mission that relate to um, humanitarian assistance. To put things in perspective, U.S. foreign assistance constitutes about 1% the federal budget. And humanitarian assistance that we're going to talk about today constitutes 0.016% of the federal budget. Now, it doesn't sound like not a very high amount of money, but in reality, in 2019, USAID spent um, about $6 billion um, providing humanitarian assistance related to 66 disasters or crises in over 50 countries. And with respect to the spending on global health-related issues, we'll talk today about HIV and malaria and even COVID, uh, that expenditure is anywhere from a billion and a half to $2 billion a year. And this year, the U.S. has set aside an additional $2 billion just for COVID. Uh, And there's also been an announcement that we intend to spend an equal amount next year. So we're talking about, you know, uh, $10 billion plus a year. 
when USAID, and with respect to humanitarian assistance, um, USAID is the U.S. government's lead federal coordinator for international disasters uh, and for humanitarian assistance. And the environments in which this support is usually provided are places that are severely affected by disaster, disease, or conflict. And so if you think about um, some of the challenges that might exist in just administering billions of dollars a year in the developing world, then you have to add to that that we're talking about some of the most chaotic countries in the developing world. They're really undergoing very, very destabilizing forces. And so the risk um, of potential fraud, waste, and abuse involving these, these funds is very, very high uh, in these environments. One of the resources that USAID has at its disposal is, the, is its Office of Inspector General. And um, just to talk briefly about the roles of the Inspectors General in providing oversight um, to all U.S. government um, executive branch agencies, Congress established through the Inspector General Act most of the large federal agencies, and these Inspectors General are, are appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate, and they have broad authority to um, investigate, audit, and review agency operations and the use of funds. And so one part of every inspector, inspector general office is its office of investigations. And so in my role at USAID, um, over the past five years, uh, between 2015 and 2019, was the assistant inspector general for investigations. And so I was responsible for overseeing all investigations of corruption and fraud involving USAID um, funds and operations worldwide. Thank you, Mr. Ullman, for that great description about how the Inspector General Office works. But one thing that I came across in my research is the unique nature of the Inspector General's Office power of enforcement and policing power. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it compares with the rest of the world? Yeah, so the, the Office of Inspector General at USAID under U.S. federal law has the authority to conduct uh, criminal investigations. And so the, the lion's share of personnel in the Office of Investigations are um, special agents, the same type of special agents that you might see at the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the Drug Enforcement Administration or any other large federal law enforcement agency. And that's a little bit different than how uh, most other international aid donors and international organizations such as you know, UN organizations operate. So unlike a lot of other countries and international organizations, the individuals responsible for looking into fraud, waste, and abuse related to USAID's funding are, in fact, federal law enforcement. And so USAID's uh, Office of Inspector General has special agents stationed at uh, about a dozen locations around the world. And because uh, the OIG primarily investigates fraud that takes place in an overseas environment, those investigations take place in foreign countries. What's really unique also about USAID's Office of Inspector General is that in some instances, they will conduct uh, investigations overseas, but eventually bring the subject uh, to justice in the United States through the U.S. court system. And we'll, we've talked about a few of those cases today. But also, USAID's Inspector General Office also collaborates, uh, if it's feasible, with law enforcement in the host country. And so sometimes there's an arrest. Uh, it results in someone being prosecuted in U.S. court and going to U.S. prison. And sometimes USAID OIG special agents will work directly with local law enforcement in the country where the crime occurred to bring the individuals to justice in that country. However, because the companies that we're contracting with uh, have, uh, generally speaking, contracts with the U.S. government 
or they have contracts with someone who has a contract with the U.S. government. There's also civil remedies that can come into place uh, and contractual remedies as well. The other, just to, to juxtapose that a bit with some of the other countries, a number of the largest uh, international donors, donor countries, they do have investigative units um, that are within their international development or humanitarian organization. Generally speaking, those units are not staffed by law enforcement officers. They're staffed by auditors. And so consequently, well, they um, have broad powers to collect documents and review them and analyze them. The actual investigative units within most of the other international donors don't have that ability to take the next step to actually go out and try to figure out a way, either work with law enforcement in the country where the crime was committed and, and bring people to justice or to work within the U.S. judicial system. The other thing that's, that's interesting and important to know is that in addition to other donor countries like the United States, many of, of the donor countries directly support organizations within the United Nations system. So for example, the United Nations World Food Program, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and other international organizations like the Global Fund. Each of those organizations also has its own internal investigative service, but none of them have their own law enforcement authority. Right. I really appreciate your perspective, and I think it's so interesting to kind of get a 50-foot view of what's actually happening in terms of these institutions and how what's actually happening to allocate this aid is so much more complicated and there are so many institutions to make sure all of the initiatives are carried out correctly. And I think you definitely complicated our picture of it's not just the United States in a country such as Syria and we're not just giving them money to go buy food or we're not just giving them direct food aid. We're cooperating with other whether it's the government there, whether it's other governments, whether it's UN aid agencies, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen to make sure the money is spent effectively and that it's not misused by some actor which will hurt real people. And I think that's important to emphasize as we move into our case studies that misappropriation isn't a victimless crime and that, you know, this money can go to better use, helping real people, and that your job as someone who did investigations had real impacts on making a difference in these countries. When I think about all the organizations that are out there that are trying to ensure accountability and transparency in foreign assistance, I really think it comes down to three key points. And I can just give you my personal opinion about them, but from my perspective, at least most importantly, is really protecting the world's most vulnerable because these funds are designed to deliver life-saving medications, life-saving vaccines, food, clothing, even water to people that are in desperate need. And so every one of these fraud cases is much more than a simple loss of taxpayer funds. It represents at best money that was wasted. And at worst, it represents uh, actual poor quality products that may directly impact the safety of, of the vulnerable. I also think about it in terms of protecting taxpayer funds around the world, and then also just maintaining confidence in the system that's so important. And so I think most people around the world are, have a positive feeling about some percentage of their taxes being spent on humanitarian assistance. But obviously, every time one of these cases comes up, it could shake confidence in the system and really end up hurting, again, the people that are most vulnerable. Right. I think you bring up some great points, Mr. Altman, about your perspective working in the agency and how the real impact is not only on U.S. citizens as taxpayers, but on some of the world's most vulnerable populations in getting the assistance that they need. Since you brought up Syria, 
I have a case study in mind for my research in an interview you did from the new humanitarian instance in Idlib. Can you elaborate more on that situation? Yeah, absolutely. And just you know, more broadly on Syria, it's really important to understand this is a, a really uh, difficult humanitarian situation. And over the past you know, four or five years, um, the international community, including USAID, um, has spent a tremendous amount of uh, money to try to ensure that food um, and basic sort of survival items are getting the people in, uh, in some very difficult areas, especially in Northwest Syria, where there's basically fighting going on uh, all around uh, the people that are there. It's difficult for them to escape from that area. And there's a real uh, issue with food insecurity and basic humanitarian items not being available. And so, yeah, one of the, one of the things that, uh, that we saw in that area uh, there was a number of things, but uh, one of them in particular had to do with the diversion of food aid. And so the U.S. government and other international donors um, uh, routinely provide funding to uh, international non-governmental organizations to provide uh, food kits directly to beneficiaries. And so these would be, for example, a box, a large cardboard box or two that, if, that, that the parents could pick up maybe every week or every other week. And, and within that are all the items they would need to basically um, provide the necessary caloric and nutritional intake for, for a family for a week. And in that particular instance, um, we discovered that uh, there had been uh, a loss of over 400,000 food kits or worth about eight and a half million dollars. And even more disturbing than the fact that there had been this loss of food kits, that they were diverted to a terrorist organization that was uh, operating in that same area, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which um, was uh, affiliated with, with Al-Qaeda. And so in that instance, and in other similar instances, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the US government would be providing funds or resources to an international NGO that would then uh, partner with NGOs inside of Syria. And in that particular instance, a number of other instances that came to light, it turned out that the local staff working inside of Syria were knowingly uh, adding members of these sanctioned groups or their families to the beneficiary list. As I mentioned earlier, if you think about the 400,000 food kits or the eight and a half million dollars, it's hard to know which is actually worse because the 400,000 food kits were meant to take care of hungry families. And instead um, they, may have, they may have gone to actually supporting uh, fighters in sort of uh, helping to attenuate the, the conflict and the war which is causing the humanitarian crisis in the first place. Yeah, I think an interesting point, which you just mentioned that I want to highlight, is just how damaging this fraud was, not only in the 400,000 food kits that were supposed to go to helping these vulnerable people, but it actually exacerbated the problem by benefiting that terrorist organization. So not only are people not getting the assistance they need, their situation might have actually gotten worse because of these fraudulent acts. In addition to the case that you mentioned, which really had to do with essentially the diversion of food kits. We also saw other types of frauds that were really insidious. Um, the other one that was very well publicized had to do with a network of vendors in Turkey who worked together with staff of some of these international NGOs to basically inject massive amounts of substandard humanitarian items while charging international donors the full price. And so the consequence of that was tens of millions of dollars of losses. Frankly, more importantly, it was children being provided substandard sweaters and snow boots, poor quality food, 
poor quality items that were going to these families that were in such desperate need. I'm really pleased to say that the United States government, along with a lot of the other international donors, did identify that as an issue. Many of those companies have been blacklisted. Since then, the United States government has found and brought to justice in the United States a ringleader involved in that activity and recently had a large settlement with the U.S. NGO for over $6 million uh, for, um, for some of the issues that were identified during that case. Um, the other thing that, that we, we, saw, we, see, we saw in Syria, and we'll sometimes see in other environments, is that because it's difficult for um, representatives of the international organizations or even the big international NGOs to go to the place where the services are being delivered, that sometimes we find out that paperwork has been falsified. And so perhaps the number of beneficiaries that were served wasn't correct, or that beneficiaries have been double counted, or that the number of staff that are working don't actually exist, or that, that a local organization might be charging multiple donors to provide the same support to the same beneficiary or charging multiple donors to pay the same employee. And these things are extremely difficult to track uh, in, in areas where you've got um, you know, disease, disaster, and conflict. Right. And as, as you're talking about every single one of these issues where aid is misappropriated, I mean, I'm sitting here and it's almost painful to listen to, but also you were a part of division of USAID that combated all of these issues. So maybe you can shed some light on how we prevented stuff like this from happening, how we stopped people from stealing money and how we made sure that it went to the right purposes. Yeah, that's that, and Emma, that's such an important point. You know, you know, one of the things that when I was with the, the IG at USA, one of the things that I really um, focused on was developing effective working relationships with the other international donors and, and with the UN organizations. And we actually formed, in the case of Syria, the Syria Investigations Working Group. And we got together twice a year, sometimes three times a year, with our counterparts from all the other international donors and from the big UN organizations. And we shared information and we shared strategies. And we really worked together to try to make it more difficult for fraudsters to, um, to intervene, to, to, to impact these operations. The other thing that, that uh, was a major area of focus for me was really um, having a candid, ongoing conversation with industry, with the international NGOs that were working in those environments, and making sure that, that, we, were making, that we were keeping them informed of the latest trends and patterns that we were seeing so they could put better internal controls. Uh, into place. And I, I want to make sure I paint the right picture of this of this industry. You know, these organizations that do this work, as I said earlier, it's extremely difficult. They're very challenging environments. The vast majority of these organizations are committed to constantly learning and improving their operations. And so we did everything possible to share as much information as possible, as quickly as possible about the schemes that we were observing. And in many cases, we saw those organizations immediately take that information, put it to use and either prevent or immediately stop fraud that was going on. Thank you, Mr. Altman. I think one point that you brought up that I think is absolutely crucial to USAID's role internationally is the role of information sharing and the importance of sharing information not only within the agency, but with other organizations across the world. Can you tell us about how this tool of information helped solve the Ugandan refugee incident in 2018? And so... Between you know, 2015 and 2018, uh, well over a million refugees um, from the DRC and South Sudan flooded into Uganda. And like Jordan and Colombia, 
Uganda was extremely generous in welcoming and welcoming those refugees in. And uh, in fact, of the refugee population, about 75% of the refugees in Uganda came from South Sudan. Um, about 15% came from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and there's a smaller number from other locations uh, in that in that region of Africa. And so, one of the challenges that occurred is as these uh, million plus uh, refugees uh, flooded into Uganda, there were some real questions in, in place about how to register them. And so, as they were coming, walking across the border, in most cases, all over the country, uh, there was a real uh, challenge of registering those, those refugees. Um, and so, ultimately, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which is uh, has sort of the global responsibility for managing these refugee crises, made an arrangement with uh, the government of Uganda that uh, essentially allowed the government of Uganda to register the refugees. And so from maybe 2016 until late 2017, the world was operating under the assumption that there were 1.4 million refugees uh, living in, uh, in Uganda. Um, that number is important because the amount of food that was provided was based on 1.4 million refugees. Um, the amount of aid that was being delivered to specific refugee camps and specific communities had to do with an understanding of the number of refugees that were there. And because a number of fraud allegations came to light in late 2017, it brought into question whether or not the actual number of refugees was 1.4 million or not. In early 2018, a couple of things happened. One, the international community became aware that there was a question as to the number of actual refugees in Uganda, and there was allegations, unconfirmed allegations made, that there was widespread fraud in the programs that were being implemented by various UN organizations to service the 1.4 million refugees. Uh, and so two things happened. One, um, there was a decision made. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the UN World Food Program would work with the government of Uganda to essentially biometrically validate all of the refugees that were in the country. Between March and October of 2018, they, uh, they opened, um, they hired about 450 people. They opened 68 sites across Uganda, and they asked every single one of the 1.4 million refugees to come in and biometrically register. And at the end of that process, in October of 2018, what they discovered was that there was only 1.1 million refugees showed up to be registered. And so what that means is that more than likely, a substantial portion of the 300,000 that didn't show up, who had been collecting benefits just before the validation, never existed in the first place. And so they, they were either people that had been registered twice, or they were people who were not eligible beneficiaries, were added to the list corruptly by government officials, or they simply didn't exist at all and the government officials may have been siphoning the funds off. And so if you think about something where you've been spending money for years to take care of 1.4 million people, but then all of a sudden in the drop of a dime, you realize it was 1.1, and you go back in your head and you do your math, and you've spent several billion dollars taking care of those 1.4 billion people, and all of a sudden you have to start thinking to yourself, well, it could be that 20 to 25% of that money we were spending was at least proportionally for something that didn't exist. The other thing that happened concurrently to that validation was that the UN Office of Internal Oversight Services, which was one of our counterparts, uh, did its own audit of how the UN was managing the funds. 
Um, and going back to what we talked about in the example in Syria, where part of the problem was the international organization was giving money to local organizations that either didn't have the capacity to manage the funds or may have had corrupt staff. What the UN found out, there were major procurement issues with all five of the UN's local partners in Uganda, that there wasn't good performance monitoring, potentially massive inflation on payments for real estate, trucking, and fuel, and fuel, uh, and that there wasn't proper oversight of making sure that the food and the items were being, sorry, the, the items were being given to the, uh, the refugees were of appropriate quality. And so using that new number and that information sharing that occurred, we move forward with a more uh, robust structure. But if you think about what might have been lost in those years, it's really shocking. Wow. Yeah, that, that certainly is a shocking story. Just to put these numbers in context to our listeners, in 2018, the U.S. took in about 22,500 refugees in comparison to this reported 1.4 million refugees being taken in by Uganda. And in my research, looking into this situation, initially, the world community praised Uganda for taking in so many refugees and for being so generous with their resources. But then with this realization that there were 0.3 million refugees who, like you were saying, simply didn't exist or were added to the list fraudulently, it made people have more negative opinion about global aid and about taking in refugees overall, which I think goes back to a point that you were making earlier when we were talking about Syria, that every time one of these fraudulent acts happens, people start to lose faith in this system, which in turn will make them less giving. And all of that ties back to our most vulnerable populations in the world not getting the aid that they need. I think what what that audit did and what the revalidation exercise did, though, is it showed us when we don't have the right controls in place in that kind of environment, how large the margins can be and how large the losses are going to be. And I think that's part of the challenge, right, both for the NGOs and for the donor countries, is if you wanted to get this perfect, uh, if, they, if they wanted it to be perfect, they likely would not have been able to get started for six months or a year. Thousands, tens of thousands of children probably would have died of hunger. And so they really didn't have a choice but to start immediately. So then the question becomes, if you know you're going into an operation and you know it's imperfect, you know there's going to be challenges, what structures have you intentionally created along with those emergency response mechanisms to make sure that there's transparency and accountability? And so I think that's one of the challenges we face across the international community. There's such a focus on moving large amounts of money and resources to respond to the crisis, but people aren't necessarily planning at the same time how much oversight is required to make sure that it's uh, it's spent properly. In this Ugandan example, we had an instance where the UN was not coordinating properly with the Ugandan government about the numbers they were reporting with the refugees. I want to transition now to an instance of an international organization having improper oversight over the quality of aid. In our research, we came across a recent Inspector General report from the Global Fund talking about fraud in their malaria project. Can you discuss a little about what happened there? Yeah, absolutely. And so far, we've talked about two humanitarian situations. But I think it's also really important when we think about um, foreign assistance that there's a tremendous amount of resources that are being spent in the global health arena and specifically trying to prevent deaths from diseases like HIV, malaria, tuberculosis, and now COVID-19. And so the Global Fund and a number of other international organizations um, are focused on uh, ensuring that 
both uh, testing kits and treatment uh, items for these various medical conditions are available throughout the world. And just to talk a little bit about malaria for a minute, malaria um, is one of the biggest killers in the world. And most people don't think of the Anopheles mosquito as being the most deadly uh, animal in the world, but uh, exponentially more people die from malaria, from mosquito bites than they do from shark attacks. Uh, and one of the best tools uh, that we have in the world is uh, to, to combat malaria is something called a long-lasting insecticide-treated net, or an LLIN. And so basically what that is, it's a mosquito net that people can hang over their bed when they sleep at night. The net itself is treated with a chemical that, that will last for a long time that uh, not only will either repel or kill the mosquitoes. And so since those LLINs were sort of uh, introduced worldwide, the number of malaria deaths has actually gone down by 60% since 2000. And so it's really, it's a really, really vital item, but it's one that you can't really verify with your eyes. So if I gave you a long lasting insecticide treated net that had been treated and one that hadn't been treated, there's nothing that looks any different when you look at it with your bare eyes. And so when people get these nets and they hang them over their beds and the people sleeping in bed with their small children, they're looking up at that net at night with blind trust that the organization that provided the net has given them a product that works, that will protect them from malaria. And in this particular case, it's one of the reasons why um, this is so concerning that the inspector general uh, at the uh, Global Fund uh, did an investigation. What they found was that a, a particular manufacturer or supplier of LLINs um, had provided 52 million bed nets between January of 17 and uh, April of 18 that were worth $106 million. And that the vast majority, over 90% of those bed nets were not properly treated, meaning that there's a substantial possibility that they were not providing the level of protection that the people sleeping under, underneath them assume that they were. Now, it's very, very difficult to prove, but there's no doubt that when we have counterfeit you know, um, mosquito nets or um, substandard HIV or malaria medications, those are not only, it's not only a finite financial crime against the donor, but can absolutely result in serious illnesses or deaths of beneficiaries. Um, and most troubling uh, was that neither the supplier nor the manufacturer cooperated with the investigation. So when the Global Fund came around and said, hey, we need copies of your quality control certificates, we need your email, we need your records, all of a sudden it was gone. And so the, the company uh, really didn't, didn't uh, uh, cooperate. The other thing that uh, came out as, as, as part of that Global Fund investigation was looking inwardly at the Global Fund. Uh, they found some, some serious gaps within the Global Fund's own processes for ensuring that quality control was done. And so um, with that Inspector General report, they'll, you know, there's a possibility of, of serious sanctions against both the supplier and the manufacturer, uh, perhaps being blacklisted, perhaps having to pay the funds back. But then also there were some very specific recommendations like there was in the Uganda case for the Global Fund itself to do a better job overseeing their procurement and logistics process. Wow. I, I mean, that's a particular heartbreaking story, thinking about those 54 million nets that we're supposed to go to from what I understand from my research, particularly vulnerable populations such as young single mothers or pregnant women. And I think one, you know, sadly ironic uh, part of this is that Tana Nettings 
uh, slogan is no more sleepless nights. And unfortunately, it's left up to the imagination about how many sleepless nights there were for these mothers and pregnant women trying to stay alive. And of course, it's deeply saddening. And Sarah, one thing I'd say too, and just in terms of you know sleepless nights and the people that are responsible for overseeing uh, these funds with respect to malaria uh, and HIV more broadly, that um, you know, in addition to this particular case that had to do with substandard, long-lasting insecticide-treated nets being produced, that um, the office that I used to work for, USAID-OIG, had a whole series of investigations going back over the past decade where uh, all throughout Africa, Malawi, Zambia, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, uh, the Congo, um, that we have cases where people are either stealing uh, malaria test kits and selling them in the market, stealing coartum, which is the main medication that's used to treat malaria, and also other cases where people are producing, you know, substandard um, LLINs and distributing them. So uh, this is not an isolated case. There are billions of dollars being spent um, to combat malaria around the world, a major part of it in Africa, and there are all manners of schemes in trying to defraud that effort. Right. So in this discussion about test kits for malaria, one thing that came to mind is the COVAX initiative and the test kits for the coronavirus that are being distributed and eventually the uh, vaccine. These healthcare distribution is that it's a familiar system for uh, the UN and COVAX at large. What do you foresee the challenges for COVAX in the incoming influx of COVID health supplies? One of the, one of the benefits, uh, one of the few benefits of COVID-19 is it may uh, have helped a lot of Americans better understand the potential impact of, uh, of a very serious disease on the overall productivity of a country. But the other thing I think it also uh, helps Americans see is how interconnected uh, we all are uh, in a global system. And so especially with COVID-19, we know that reducing the uh, number of cases around the world as quickly as possible not only will help those uh, save lives and help those countries become as productive as possible, but it also reduces the possibility of, um, of mutations occurring, which could ultimately um, have a very serious impact on us here in the United States. And so, um, so far this year, you know, the U.S. government has committed about $2 billion to COVAX. And, and what COVAX basically is, is a um, cooperative effort between Gavi, which is an international organization, sort of the Global Vaccine Alliance, and a number of other organizations, including UNICEF, which is the United Nations Children's Fund, to help basically help countries by making mass purchases of both uh, COVID vaccines and COVID testing kits, and then helping to make them available. And so, and in fact, you know, um, I just saw on the on the COVAX website this morning, they've, you know, they've been up and going for about 60, uh, 60 days or so. They've already distributed about 38 million doses of COVID vaccine into 100 different economies around the world. And so that's great. And it's great that it's being centrally managed by very capable, you know, international organization like organizations like Gavi uh, and UNICEF. But it's also important to remember that once those vaccines, once those test kits hit the local economies in all of these countries, that they are then susceptible to all the same types of fraud and corruption that we've already talked about um, in the podcast. And so uh, as everybody here knows, uh, our experience, uh, everyone now knows the value of a rapid uh, COVID test kit. Everybody knows the value of being able to get a vaccine. 
And so those things have tremendous potential to be diverted, stolen, and resold in a black market, not to the people who need it the most, but the people that can afford it. And so I think what's, at least from the American perspective, what's really um, important here, and it goes back to something we were discussing earlier, which is when we have this type of a response and when we have this substantial of an investment, not just from the U.S., but from all international donors, you know, a really important question is what structures have been put in place to help protect um, the, the, the process from cradle to grave, from, from, from the process they have in place to purchase the vaccines and make sure the vaccines they're purchasing are of the right quality, all the way through to making sure that the vaccines are actually being delivered to the intended recipients. And, and that requires a tremendous amount of effort, um, starting with big international donors, all the way down to managers of health clinics in rural parts of developing countries. Um, and so it's a tremendous challenge. Absolutely. I think as a person, it's easy to kind of distance yourself away from these kind of instances, especially when they're so hard to hear about. So many people have been impacted by fraudulent acts. But I think one thing that we can't take ourselves out of is how much COVID has affected us all and how much we now know about the importance of getting a vaccine and getting tested. Right. I mean, as a coordinator, you understand really well just how much planning goes into where we direct the aid who the aid goes to how it's used so seeing it be misappropriated i think you understand more than any, anyone else how frustrating that can be because of all of the planning and work that's gone into it beforehand especially in some cases where all of your planning and work is to make sure it goes to people who need it the most but that also brings with it the challenges from those particular countries who have maybe more flawed systems of implementation yeah, so Emma, I think I think, I think it, it can absolutely be said many of the countries that are experiencing disease, disaster, and conflict, the very nature of the situations in those countries that are helping to sort of either create or amplify these types of issues, those tend to be the countries that have difficulties with governance, difficulties with corruption, difficulties with having the type of sort of complex supply chain surveillance systems that you would need to properly oversee these things. And that's a base reality of uh, every international aid organization, every humanitarian assistance organization, is that in addition to simply providing medicines or vaccines or test kits, that part of that investment has to be in helping, helping those countries develop the infrastructure to manage a supply chain in an accountable way, and also make sure those, that, that uh, we work with whatever structures exist in those countries to uh, prevent our, our resources from being siphoned off or stolen. And sometimes it's very difficult. Right. And just to quickly add at the end of what you said there, I think it's important to emphasize that you're saying just because these countries are fraught with many issues, the last thing we should do is give up on them because of their issues. In fact, it means we should double down and figure out new and innovative ways to help them even better. So I think now looking back on all of our discussions and all of our case studies, whether it was Uganda or the Tana netting, um, we saw USAID and other organizations deal with a variety of issues plaguing each of these crises. We took a look at the issues and we took a look at some of the solutions for these issues. I was wondering, now that you're retired, maybe you can look back on your career and how USAID operated while you were a part of it and how maybe it's operating now. If you could give maybe a Yelp review style assessment of how you think they're doing. Are they doing like five stars? I wouldn't change anything. One star, absolutely terrible. 
maybe four stars, they're doing great, but I would maybe make these changes. So maybe give constructive criticism and an overall assessment of how you think they're doing. First of all, I would say that the um, the, the almost 11 years I spent at USAID um, really was the honor of a lifetime. And if I had to give it a review, I give it about 4.8 stars. It's a, it, as an American, um, walking through the doors of that building every day and seeing the photos on the wall of the direct impact that the American people are having on um, the lives and economies and health uh, and human rights of people around the world. Um, it was something that was an incredible honor to be part of it. And so we talked today about a lot of complications and a lot of problems. And it's true those things exist, but the reality is that the mission that USAID uh, takes on every day is almost impossible. So in other words, they're working in some of the most difficult, complex environments in the world, and they're popping in on short notice and instituting programs. And so the, the best way to, to sort of uh, test, to evaluate an organization is how willing are they to admit mistakes? How willing are they to learn from those mistakes? How willing are they to, um, to try and experiment with new systems and controls to prevent it from happening. In my experience, um, in the time that I was with USAID, uh, that the organization does all of those things. And so if you were to go out there and Google fraud in USAID, you'll find lots and lots of articles. And that's okay, because the environment in which they work in, that's somewhat inevitable. But you'll also see a huge commitment by both the agency leadership and the inspector general's office to doing whatever is needed protect those operations. And so some of the investigations we've talked about today, you know, we've had people go out to some of the most you know, remote locations in the world, work in very dangerous environments, and, and all that was done to ensure that the, that the funds are used um, appropriately and that they're reaching the intended beneficiary. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Sarah Rocca for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, a super special thanks to our guest, Mr. Daniel Altman, for his insight. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. Facebook.